Okay, we are in Acts chapter 18. So, in Acts chapter 17, Paul had been in Athens. Acts chapter 18, he's in Corinth. We spoke a little bit about the introduction to this last time. And we're going to pick it up from Acts chapter 18, verse 5. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the Word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be under your own heads. I am clean. From now on I go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So, What's interesting about this passage, I think that the last time we had talked about how, how um, this, when, 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 it, when he cried out, your, your, your blood be on your own heads, what that meant and how he was moving on to a different phase. But also in verse 5, when Silas and Timothy had come down, he was able to devote himself full time to the ministry of the Word of God. And he was able to do that because uh, uh, he didn't have to work as a tent maker anymore. There was money coming in. You know, I'll tell you one of the things that amazes me. I'm amazed sometimes about how little full-time workers will work for the Lord. And I'm being quite honest with you. What I see in the life of uh, ministers of the Gospel and the Scriptures is there's this utter devotion to wanting to share the Scriptures. When God calls us into ministry, we must minister. We are called to minister. And when we are called into full-time ministry... In particular, there must be a desire to share. There must be a desire to labor for the Lord. And, and in Paul, you see this. Paul talks about, you know, all of this was going on in my life. I was going through pain and all this suffering, and yet the concern for all the churches is there. If we are called into full-time ministry, it is a full-time job. It is not waking up at 11 a.m., and, and then just studying, you know, for, for an hour and then just wasting time until the evening when we have some services. It is constantly laboring for the Lord. And if you don't have that fire, if you don't have that passion, maybe you ought to question whether you ought to be in full-time service. You rise up early and you get things ready for the day. And you allow your day to be set aside in service to the Lord. If you have free time, either spend it in the Word of God or go out and share. You know, and, and, and sometimes I, I even see young people go into full-time service, you know, where they take a year or two and go into full-time service. I'm like, what do you do with your day? Well, you know, I just kind of think about things and, you know, and, and there's the meetings two evenings a, a week or something. And a, and, a, and, a, and a meeting during the day. That is not full-time Christian service as we see in the Scriptures. Full-time Christian service is you're putting in time for the Lord. It is an important thing. Question, question, whether you have that passion 
for full-time Christian service if you're going to be moving into it. To labor for the Lord. It is a serious thing. The Lord does call people. But it is something that ought to call us to labor for the Lord. To say, you know, maybe I need to, you know, I have this afternoon. Maybe I need to go to the student center. Maybe I need to go to the mall and just begin to share with people. Maybe that's something that I need to do. This is what full-time Christian service is. It is laboring for the Lord. Okay, then he goes on and he shares that after he moved away from there, he, he, he met with Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, who believed in the Lord and all his household. And many Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Crispus is one of the few people that, that Paul actually baptized himself. He talks about that in 1 Corinthians. He talks about how he, he had baptized personally. Paul had only baptized Gaius and Crispus and Stephanus. Stephanus. That's it. In all of Corinth. And, and uh, let's look at that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because the, the Corinthians were, were, were uh, uh, forming into factions, Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, Now I mean this, that each of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. So look what Paul says. He baptized uh, 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 Crispus, Gaius, and the household of Stephanus. And that's it. Now, why did he mention these three? Why those three? Well, probably because they were influential people. And Paul wanted to baptize them. They were very influential people. Uh, Crispus was head of the synagogue, it says. And so Paul did that as an example. But Paul says something interesting there in 1 Corinthians. He says, he says, I didn't baptize any, anyone else. For I did, I was not, God, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. He says, God didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Paul knew his portion of the calling of Christ. And he flowed in that. Now, he could baptize. He had the ability to do it. But remember the, the Great Commission in the end of Matthew. The last chapter of Matthew is this portion of the, of the Great Commission. And you'll see what Jesus instructed his disciples to do in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. He says, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. That is the Great Commission. The Great Commission is that we go and make disciples of all nations. Paul did that. Part of the Great Commission was baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Although that is part of the Great Commission, Paul didn't feel called particularly to that phase of the Great Commission. He says, I do the work of baptism, I'm able to do it, but I commit that to the others. And then teaching them to observe all that I command you. Paul did that. Paul is the New Testament writer in large part. And so, even within the Great Commission... There are areas that God would have us focus upon. 
Some people are much better at evangelizing and bringing people in. They're like magnets. And I see young people like this sometimes. They're like magnets. They get to know unbelievers and all of a sudden they're bringing these unbelievers to church and, and after a few months these unbelievers become believers. They're much better than doing, at doing that than, say, teaching. But within the context of the Great Commission, there is going and making disciples, there is the actual work of the conversion, there is the baptism work, and there is the teaching work. All of that is part of the Great Commission. And yet Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I was not called to baptize, because he knew his realm within the Great Commission. And to find your strength within that calling of the Great Commission is a good thing. And rest in that strength and then use it, use it, use it. Again and again, use it. The more you use it, the more you will receive. Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is expected. When you have a particular gift in an area, use that. And that's why when when people ask me to speak in a particular place, I will, even if I'm extremely busy, I will put that matter to prayer. Because I don't want to just say, no, I'm busy. If God has called me to teach the Scriptures, I have to do that to the best I can. Within the context that I'm not a full-time laborer, I have a, a, a whole other set of jobs to do during the day. But God calls us to minister. And if, remember, if you go into full-time service, you labor very hard for the Lord. You should not be showed up in labor by the 40-hour work week of the typical worker. You should be laboring. The amount of hours that many young people who go into full-time Christian service that actually study the Scriptures and are laboring for the Lord is amazingly small sometimes. Remember, when you labor for the Lord, you labor for Him. You have free time on your hands. You're a full-time Christian worker. Go out and witness. Go out and share. Don't wake up at 11 o'clock a.m. or noon and think, oh, because I have meetings at night. Remember, there's people who attend those meetings at night. They get up early in the morning to go to work. You can labor at least as hard as them. Okay, let's turn back to Acts chapter 18. He says in verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. This was at the beginning of Paul's ministry. God is speaking prophetically. I have many people in this city. Meaning that God knows who the elect are in this city. This was probably the most fruitful city that Paul was in. After God spoke that to him, after he spoke that to him, he spent another year and a half before the next event. So he may have spent actually two and a half or three years in total in that city. It was a very fruitful ministry. But look at what God says to him. He said to him in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer. Now why would God say do not be afraid any longer? Do you think God would say do not be afraid any longer because, God was, because Paul was not afraid? No, God would not say, do not be afraid on any longer, if, he was, if Paul was not afraid. He said, come on, was Paul really afraid? Paul was afraid. Remember, this was the most decadent city. You go into the student center at Rice and Share. You go on to Times Square, downtown Times Square in New York City, and share. Tell me where you're more afraid. This was the most decadent city. 
And Paul speaks about this very thing. Paul said, God says to him, don't be afraid. I want you to go on speaking. I am with you and no man is going to attack you in order to harm you. Now, this wasn't a promise for his whole life. This was a promise for him in that particular city. Remember what happened to Paul. Paul had been, before, prior to this, on his first missionary journey, he had, been, he had had stones cast at him to the point where people thought he was dead. He had been in prison several times. He had been whipped and beaten. This was for this particular city, says Paul, in this city, nobody's going to harm you. You know, imagine the way Paul felt. You know, he had been beat up so many times. He's wondering, when's it going to happen again? And God says, there's a reprieve, Paul. It's not going to happen in this city. Don't be afraid. There are many people going to come in this city. Look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul reveals some of his own heart at this time. We don't know what Paul was thinking by reading that that portion in Acts. But in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul reveals what was going on. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, reading from verse 1. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Verse 6, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, and so forth. So Paul reveals what was going on in his heart. He says in verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul was trembling? Yes, not just trembling. Paul says, I was with you in much trembling. That's why God spoke to him. Paul, don't be afraid any longer. Can you imagine the way he felt? He says, I was there. I was there in weakness. Paul had gone through such times. Remember, he had brought, been brought just before this in Athens to the Eurapagus to, to speak. And, and uh, uh, very few believed, just a few believed him. And they sneered at him and they mocked at his message. Maybe he was worn out. Maybe he was physically weak. Maybe he was spiritually weak. We don't know exactly what was going on. Maybe he was sickly at the time. But he says, I was with you in weakness when I came to you. I wasn't feeling very good. I wasn't particularly empowered. Let me tell you, you want to serve the Lord, you will not always feel particularly empowered. If you say, well, wait till I you know, really feel built up and spiritually ready, you will never serve the Lord. You will never feel quite ready enough. And that is good. God takes your weakness and makes it His strength because when you feel particularly ready, you're full of yourself and you're not ready. Paul says, I was with you in weakness. I was with you in fear. Paul was afraid. You think, the great man Paul, I mean, he's, a, he's you know, the great prophet, the great apostle. Paul says, I was afraid. And in much trembling. If Paul had been giving a PowerPoint presentation and holding that laser pointer, it would have been shaking. Imagine Paul's voice must have been breaking up. You know when, you, when you're nervous, when you're scared, people can hear it in your voice as your voice begins to crack. Paul says, that's who I was. 
That's what was happening in my life. If you look, keep your finger there, look in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This is what the people were hearing. They heard that his speech wasn't particularly in wisdom. That there was fear in this voice. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. Paul is speaking about the people who are criticizing him. He says, For they say, His letters are weighty and strong, but His personal presence is unimpressive and His speech contemptible. That's in 2 Corinthians 10.10. So in other words, his detractors were saying, Paul writes all these bold letters like when he wrote to us 1 Corinthians. But when he's here, his presence is unimpressive. Paul wasn't some big grand man that walked in there, big handsome man that caught their attention. Wow, what a handsome man. No, he said, they said his presence is unimpressive. There was nothing in Paul that was impressive physically. It was the same with Jesus. Because we learn from Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53 that there was nothing in Jesus physically that drew people to him. So with Paul, there was nothing impressive there that he had. And this word Paul means small. There was nothing impressive there physically. And not only that, his, it says his presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. So in other words, they didn't find his speech any, anything quite profound in the words he was saying. Maybe they detected this nervousness in him. And as soon as the crowd hears nervousness in the speaker, you know, they begin to think, oh, this guy's scared of us. Paul says, that's who I was. That's who I was when I was in your presence. You want to know what happened in Corinth? It was the power of God. It wasn't me. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And when you are asked, say in Campus Crusade or something on campus, to get up and share. Or when you are asked to teach a Bible study and you say, well, you know, I can't, I feel nervous. Well, welcome to the crowd. You will never get over your nervousness if you don't share. And even when you share, you will never get past your nervousness. And you'll feel, well, I'm too young. You will always feel either too young or too old for the task that God has called you to. You will never feel the proper age. You will always feel that either you are too young or that for this crowd you are too old. You will never feel quite adequate enough. And that's good because then your dependency is on God. Paul says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. You know, he's holding his notes and his hands are shaking. That's what he says. You want to say I'm exaggerating? Then what does he mean by much trembling? What do you think he means? It means he was much trembling. That's what Paul was doing. This was a scary city. It was so full of decadence. A Corinthian woman met, met a prostitute. To Corinthianize was made into a verb to mean that it, it, it was, it was uh, 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 something that was, was quite decadent. To walk in a decadent manner. So when Paul receives this word from the Lord, the Lord knows what he's talking about. In Acts chapter 18, he says, Don't be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Go on speaking and do not be silent. The enemy is always trying to quench our witness. Always trying to quench our witness. Say, you know, maybe you really shouldn't speak. You really shouldn't speak. 
This isn't the proper time. Don't speak. God tells Paul, don't be afraid any longer. He says, I want you to go on speaking. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. You can't hear that any other way. God says, go on speaking and do not be silent. He stresses it over and over again. He says, and in this city, no man is going to attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. No man laid a hand on Paul in this city. From what we we have in the scriptures. No man touched Paul. But he went forth in power. All right, now, verse 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names in your own law, look after it yourselves. I'm unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about these things. So after a year and a half of Paul's ministry, remember Acts is written in a chronological order as it tells us in, in chapter 1. After spending six mo- a year and six months in ministry there, um, he's brought up on charges before Gallio, which was the proconsul there in that city. And Gallio actually was a pretty good guy in general. There are writings about Gallio, what a nice man he was to other people. But he didn't particularly care a whole lot about the Jews, as many Romans didn't. And when the Jews bring Paul up on charges that he's teaching people, persuading men to worship God contrary to the law, Gallio, Paul began to make a defense, and Gallio just cut him off. Gallio didn't want to hear it. As far as Gallio was concerned, he didn't see the difference between what Paul was preaching and what the Jews preached. He says, you, you know, if, it's a, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crimes, O oh Jews, he says, it'd be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if it's questions about words and names in your own law, Paul viewed Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. The Jews in general did not. To Gallio, that was not a major move away from Judaism. That was words and names in your own law. He says, you guys deal with it your own selves. He says, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. So in other words, this is really quite anti-Semitic in what he says. You know, I would put up with you if it were a matter that dealt with me. And he called them, O Jews. Because the leader was anti-Semitic and he released them, what it did is it allowed the other Romans that were there to start persecuting Sosthenes, who was now the leader of the synagogue. Remember, before it had been Crispus, Crispus had come to the Lord a year and a half earlier, so now Sosthenes is the leader of the synagogue. He's probably the one bringing up charges against Paul. Gallio says these things in this, in this anti-Semitic way to Sosthenes, and so the people start beating up Sosthenes because they think he's unprotected here. 
And they think, you know, you bothered the proconsul by this, and they start to beat him up. So Sosthenes was not a believer. He was the leader of the synagogue. He was probably the one who was charging Paul. And Paul walks away unscathed. Because remember, God's promise, in this city no man will touch you. But what of this man Sosthenes? The Bible is actually quite accurate in making sure it doesn't mix up names. And when it's speaking within the same context, it's very accurate with names. And if there is a problem with names and, and confusion could come, it will tack something on to tell you, for example, Mary Magdalene. There's like four Marys in the Gospels. And so it, it, it starts naming specifically so you don't get mixed up. But what of this man Sosthenes? You know, we see him again, interestingly enough, in 1 Corinthians. When Paul is writing to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is in Corinth. This is very likely the same Sosthenes, because the scriptures don't, Mixed up names. Speaking within the same context, Paul says, Sosthenes is with me. We are together writing to the church at Corinth. This man who was so accusing Paul back in Corinth at the judgment seat of Gallio is with Paul when he's writing a letter to Corinth. The social gospel is so powerful. A couple of weeks ago, a, a, a great preacher was in our home, and he asked a question, and he said, what caused Christianity to grow so rapidly in a 200-year period that it should become the major religion of the land in a 200-year period? From the time of Christ, 200 years onward, to become the major religion of the land. Why? What would have caused it to grow so rapidly? And Michael Lindsay was also over with us. And Michael Lindsay is, is quite a scholar of, 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 uh, um, of these sort of things. And he said, the social gospel. And the preacher said, absolutely right. Because the Christians, unlike any other people, cared for the sick, cared for the poor, and cared for the de- uh, uh, those who were destitute. And that is what caused, caught the world's attention. And that is what drew people. When we care for others, that is what will draw people. What drew me to Christ, coming from a Jewish home, was not so much the witness of Christ when somebody shared with me the gospel. It was when I saw Christians together interacting, having meals together, laughing and enjoying one another, and their laughter was never at someone else's expense. That's what drew me. Because what I had known as an unbeliever growing up is that when you have a group of people that's laughing, somebody else is hurting. And that hurting one was often me. And all of us have experienced that. When we see care for one another, it draws other people. That's why I am so proud of the ministry that's going to be going forth from this church to the the Hispanic community where they've set up a medical clinic, dental and medical and pharmacy clinic for the poor, totally free. And how the doctors and dentists in this church will start serving in that, giving their time in that. 
That is exactly what builds churches. It is that social gospel. Who cared for Sosthenes when he was beating, being beaten up by the crowd? I don't know. It doesn't say. But this Sosthenes was right at Paul's side when he's writing the letter to the, to the Corinthians. This is the man who was accusing Paul. When we take the very people who will oppose us and minister love to them, this is what draws people. It is this social gospel that is what draws people. It is the social gospel. In, in, in uh, uh, Luke chapter 10, Jesus goes through this, this parable of, of the, uh, the, the Samaritan. And it's interesting what he says. He says, a priest passed by this hurt Samaritan on the other side. Because you know why? He probably thought, nobody's around, nobody's looking. And a Levite, the same way, went by on the other side because nobody was looking. But the Samaritan stopped, gave his money, gave his time for the care of others. If you want to touch lives, you minister through the social gospel, where you don't just give the word, but you give ministry. You give ministry. You say, well, what kind of ministry can I give? Do you have a place where you live? Do you have a head over, uh, a roof over your head where you sleep? If you have such a place, even if it's a small apartment, you can minister to people. And people say, well, when, when I get a house, then I'll start ministering to people. I'll have people in. Liar, liar. You have a place right now. You minister now. I did this in graduate school. We, and, and, and as an undergraduate, I lived in a house with a bunch of Christian guys. We would set aside a night to invite people in to our home and serve them dinner. Why did we do this? Because we were instructed to do it. Because the, the, the elder who was over that house said, it will be good for you guys to learn to minister to others. And in that we learned. So that when I went to graduate school and I had a little apartment, a little room in a, in a graduate dorm, I would invite people in. The guys on the floor, I'd invite them in and I'd serve them whatever little things I had, I would serve it to them. Minister to them. And I had Sudanese in my room, I had other Arabs in my room, and they said, you know, you're, you're so good to us, you're so kind. And all I did was share little things that I had. The social gospel touches people. And then, when we got our first apartment, Shireen was right there with me. We started having people in right from when we got married. You use your apartment, you use your facilities to bring people in and minister. It will speak volumes because most people don't invite strangers into their home. You minister where you are at. You call yourself a Christian, do it. Because Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, verse 37, when he finishes that portion on the Good Samaritan, he says, go and do the same. Go and do the same. What I have told you the Samaritan has done, go and do the same. He didn't just leave it as some ethereal story out there. He said, now I take this story and I put it right here in your face. Do it! How much more would we like? How much more clear? How much more clear could Jesus be than to say, do it. Go and do the same. Oh, he must be speaking figuratively. No, he is not speaking figuratively. He is saying, go and do the same. You minister with the social gospel. We don't know much about this guy Sosthenes. All we know is he was a Jew who was accusing Paul, who got beat up because the leader showed him no protection. 
somebody must have ministered love to him, and he's at Paul's right hand when he's writing the letter to the first Corinthians, to the Corinthians, the letter of First Corinthians. And he was the leader of the synagogue. Like Crispus, this man was one. The social gospel. You have no excuse. I have no excuse. If I don't open up my home to minister Christ, I am without excuse. God has given me this home. God has given me these resources. God has given me this salary. I must use it to bless others. You will never, never see a basket in my house collecting money for people who come in to eat. I am amazed. Shireen and I will go into some of the huge houses in this community and they have a basket for people to contribute to the meal for the Christmas party they invited us to. I mean, I just want to vomit in there. How can people be so stingy? Take what you have and give it to another. Even to the own guests in your home. You put a basket to take money? Did Jesus put a basket when he, he, he made all this food and, and, and had this, this 12 baskets full left over? Did he take up an offering from that? Never. Take what you have and give it to others. You say, well, I don't have much. Perfect. If you had a lot, you wouldn't get much blessing. It's when you don't have much. When you give out of your sustenance, Jesus said of the widow woman, because she has given out of her sustenance. That's what has meaning. Everyone else was given out of this surplus. It's when you take it out of the things that you budget for yourself, then it has meaning. When you go without something for the good of another, that is the social gospel. And that is what people will get impacted with. And that is what will draw other people. Don't be so selfish. The body of Christ is in general a bunch of tightwads. They really are. You take what little you have, what little space you have, what little apartment you have, and you invite people in. You say, well, I'm not good at cooking. I'm not good at cooking either. But when I lived in that discipleship house, I knew how to make two things. I called up my mother. She taught me how to make two meals. And I made two meals really well. And I cooked two different meals for different people that, that we would have in. And they loved it. It was a good meal. Take what little you have and bless another. You can really do that. And that is what draws people. And when you see somebody picked on, when you see a Sosthenes, you go and minister to that person. I say to my kids, who are the kids at school that get beat up a lot, that get picked on? And they tell me, I said, I want you to go and befriend them. I want you to go and sit with them. They're like, Dad, you know, then people won't like me. I said, no, they'll like you all the more. You go and befriend them. And then the next week I'll say, tell me, did you talk to the boy? What did he say? What happened when you sat with him, when nobody else was sitting with him in the lunchroom? And and, uh, um, I tell my my son, Ben, he goes to these these little uh, 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 seventh grade dances. I said, Ben, you're going to see some young ladies there that nobody wants to dance with them because they're not attractive, because they have no friends. I want you to go and ask them to dance with you. He says, Dad. I said, I want you to do this. And now every dance, I don't have to ask him anymore. I said, tell me who had nobody dancing with them. And did you dance with them? And it's always, yes, I did. Yes, I did. I want them to learn. You minister to the hurting. You yourself will be blessed many times over. This is the social gospel. 
This is what gets people attention. I tell Shireen, I teach this Word of God on Sundays, but what you do in the home at lunch is more important. This is what really the ministry is. If this Word is not coupled with the social gospel, it has very little impact. must be coupled with an outreach where people come in and they feel blessed. That is Shireen's ministry. She takes that seriously. Each of us can have some type of ministry that ministers in this way so that we can get hold of the Sosthenes that are out there. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the Word of God that challenges us, that calls us to something bigger than ourselves. Father, thank You that You take us in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And You say, do not be afraid any longer. But go on speaking and do not be silent. Father, thank you for your protection. Thank you for your calling us to something bigger than ourselves. That even in fear, we are called to share. And Father, thank you for the social gospel. The thing that reaches out to others. Father, thank you for your witness. Thank you, Lord, for your mercies. Father, I pray for these young people that you would teach them to be generous with their time, with what they have, with their resources, with their apartments, with their food. Father, that they would be generous and so be blessed many times over. Father, I pray that many lives would be touched through the hearers of this message. In the name of Jesus. Amen.